This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Warriors in Their Own Words. In partnership with The Honor Project, we've brought this podcast back at a time when our nation needs these stories more than ever. Warriors in Their Own Words is our attempt to present an unvarnished, unsanitized truth of what we have asked of those who defend this nation. Thank you for listening, and by doing so, honoring those who have served. Today, we'll be hearing from Specialist Jan Scruggs. Scruggs served as a rifleman in Vietnam and received the Purple Heart, the Combat Infantry Badge, and an award for gallantry. He went on to found the Vietnam Veterans Memorial in Washington, D.C. First name Jan, J-A-N, last name Scruggs, S-C-R-U-G-G-S widely known as the founder of the Vietnam Veterans Memorial, which receives 5.5 million visitors per year. I was uh, uh, with the 199th Light Infantry Brigade, uh, Company D-412, and uh, I primarily shot mortars, but I was also a rifleman. And uh, I was uh, on the list to become E-5 sergeant, but I had to leave Vietnam, so... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but I got out of Vietnam and got out of the Army the same day and spent a total of uh, 19 months on active duty and spent uh, two months in uh, recovering from wounds uh, received on May 28th, uh, 1969. So it was a, a year that was mostly boredom, but when there was excitement, there was a lot of it. Well, uh, you know, I was 18 years old, uh, and um, my father had gotten a second wife, and I didn't really get along with her. The only skill I had uh, was pumping gas and doing oil changes. And what are you going to do at age 18? Uh, for me, the smartest thing seemed to be just to get out of the environment I was in and go into the military for two years, uh, which I did. I vol- actually volunteered for the draft. And... Uh, was trained at Fort uh, Bragg, infantry training at Fort Benning, and I was also enrolled for a while in the NCO course in uh, for leadership at uh, Fort Polk. No, actually, that was Benning. Yeah, I th- I wanted to be a, a you know airborne paratrooper for two years and uh, and probably a rifleman. And uh, that's kind of what I assumed would happen to me, (laughs) but 
because somehow uh, they were kind of in a bigger hurry to get me to Vietnam than I thought. So I, I was unable to do the par uh, airborne school. Most of my friends went to college, and that was a big determinant as well. I mean, if, if I had been with a more upper-class, financially successful family, I might have been going to college instead of going to Vietnam. So uh, that, there's uh, that one issue. Vietnam was uh, was very, very divisive event. It, it had divided the country. It divided families. There had been some political violence. My first day in Vietnam was August of uh, 1968. And uh, one of the first things that happened to me when I was in the Army within a month is they, they took me into a room with eight or ten other guys and asked us if we would like to become infantry officers at Officer Candidate School at Fort Benning, Georgia. And uh, I, I laughed because, I mean... I was only 19, 18 years old. I, I was still learning how to shave, and I didn't really feel confident le leading people into combat. So I, I passed on that, and uh, I was very much in a hurry to get out of the army and get get a good job and and get my uh, myself financially stable and get married and have children and all that sort of thing. Yeah, Vietnam has a kind of heat that. Uh, I mean, you, you maybe in the summers in uh, Louisiana or Mississippi in the very low places with very low altitude and a lot of swamps, you, you can kind of get that kind of feel. So it, it also has uh, smells of uh, something called nukmam, which is uh, kind of a fish sauce. They would put it on everything. A very, very unpleasant place to be. Uh, and that's even without the war going on. <laughs> uh, but uh, I, I, uh, I persevered, became a rifleman, and uh, had uh, quite an adventure there, which resulted in my getting you know, post-traumatic stress disorder and leading the effort nationally for a memorial to, to those who served and to those who died. Uh, we had their names, names engraved. Yes, on the 27th of May, we walked into an ambush by the North Vietnamese regulars. I mean, they, li they lived in the jungle. They sort of saw us coming. Both of our medics were out of action. One had a bullet go right through the eye and out the back of the side of his head. I mean, he's still alive, but he doesn't remember much of anything. And uh, the other medic got shot right through the neck, and uh, he was laying there. But he was telling people what to do to get the other people kind of sewed up and ready for the helicopter ride out of there. And uh, he was a, from Puerto Rico, actually, and, and was drafted, which I found very fascinating. The next day, I said, look, <laughs> I know I'm going to get shot today or, or hit with something. So I took my army poncho and I squeezed it together so that it would stop shrapnel. And I put it behind my, uh, my back. And that's exactly what happened. There was some shooting behind me. I moved, got behind a tree, started firing. Some other guys joined me. And the next thing we know, two RPGs landed right in the middle of us. And, you know, these guys were gone, running because they were continuing to target us. And uh, they saved me. And uh, 
I spent uh, a couple of months in the hospital and getting rehab, and it was uh, um, just a crazy thing to have that kind of of injury. And instead of having my spine broken in half, having a big piece of shrapnel the size of a golf ball as a little souvenir, which I should have brought home. But uh, I was hit pretty badly. I couldn't use my rifle anymore. The shrapnel in my right hand uh, had taken away my ability to pull the slide back and all that sort of thing. So I, I did change magazines, and I thought I had targeted where these guys were and just started firing but then I said, I can't do this anymore because I'm bleeding out. And uh, I was, I was, you know, blood was kind of pumping. And uh, I uh, had one of these out-of-body experiences. And uh, it was kind of like I was looking down at my body and kind of on my way up through the trees. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe these things just happen in your head. I don't know. But I said the Lord's Prayer. And, and I just said... I can't believe how unfair this is for me, a, a kid who just turned 19 years old, to die in the middle of the jungle next to this gross tree uh, in a little mud hole in Vietnam. How, how could you do this to me, God? <laughs> so I said, to, look, if you'll you know, get me out of this mess, I will do something positive in my life. So... <laughs> I can't prove God was there or heard my prayers or anything else, but uh, that's that's my recollection of it. And uh, right after all that happened, uh, I returned to my body, sort of, and and the guys came. Somebody yelled, "Scruggs, he's over here!" And they pulled me out of uh, out of the situation I was in, and, and they actually left a sniper behind to shoot my rescuers, and uh, apparently my rescuers shot him. So it was uh, quite a day. And then here's the thing. I got PTSD from that, and, uh, but it didn't last that long, you know. I was able to overcome it. You, know, you kind of relive the thing. I mean, that's really what you do when something like this happens. You survive a car accident or something like that. Keep replaying it in your mind. And if it involves... Uh, you know, combat and guns and all that sort of thing. It's at a different level. So I would just kind of keep reliving it. But to me, it was kind of like, I'm wounded, 19 years old. You know, this is like the Red Badge of Courage, the book by Stephen Crane about the young boy who joins the army and the Union Army. And he finally, the Confederates yell at him, be careful, boy, you might get that Red Badge of Courage, which means getting a Purple Heart. I said, hey, I got the red badge of courage. And the PTSD uh, left me pretty soon, within a month or so. It was just kind of a, it was kind of nothing to it. Most of this shrapnel actually hit my buttocks. Uh, quite a bit of it did. It was my buttocks, my left buttock was kind of hanging off there. So the medic said, well, goodbye, Scruggs. Tell all the girls back home uh, we look forward to joining them because you are not going to survive this. You're going you're gonna to live, but you're going home. So I said, oh, great. <laughs> I think I'm ready. And uh, But they put me on a, a little improvised stretcher, and uh, they I started singing Leaving on a Jet Plane by Peter, Paul, and Mary, you know, laughing because they had this morphine, which I'd never had before, of course, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> pretty powerful stuff. I mean, it, uh, 
Uh, it's, it's kind of like drinking a case of beer in about two minutes. It's just amazing stuff. So I got to this little hospital. I was next to this little Vietnamese guy, and he had been wounded as well. And uh, I thought he was an enemy soldier. But he said, no, I'm with the, the popular forces. This was a, a local group. And he had been wounded that day. And then uh, they took me to a nice Air Force hospital in Saigon. It was the 93rd Avac. And they had the surgeons there. They were very talented guys and uh, nurses. And it was uh, a very beautiful air-conditioned hospital. And then once they did the surgery on me and removed uh, quite most of the shrapnel, although I have still have about 12 pieces in my in my body. I even have one that's kind of crawled up to my neck. I don't know why, but I think it's not unusual. So that's what I did. And, uh, and a couple months later, I was back to my unit and had, had to go on patrols, uh, primarily just fired my mortar from time to time. Probably every other third or fourth day, we would have a fire mission, usually because someone had spotted a, a, uh, congregation of enemy troops somewhere so we would fire the 81 millimeters in concert with the 4.2 millimeters and uh, the 105 artillery so that, that was kind of what we did on a daily basis i really wanted to see the guys again you know the people who saved me and were, were wounded together and uh, I, I just wanted to see them again so I was looking forward to going back to my unit, which I did, and uh, we were in the middle of the awful jungle, literally in the middle of nowhere, and, and uh, <laughs> it was a, a terrible base camp. Anyway, we, we tore it down and then moved uh, our mortar and infantry guys to uh, the outskirts of a town called Swan Luck. X-U-A-N-L-O-C, and I spent the remainder of my tour uh, in the Swan Lock and in the jungles around there from time to time. Well, it's very interesting. You know, you have post-traumatic stress disorder, and you also have post-traumatic growth. And uh, you see, it's, it's very important to understand that if you are the victim of a real violent crime or you're in the middle of something and people are getting shot, stabbed, raped, that sort of thing, it affects the frontal, frontal cortex of your brain, the, the alpha receptors and so forth kind of keep you on edge sometimes for the rest of your life. You know, you're still always on edge. So uh, that's, that's problematic. But for me... Uh, I never really thought about it. I, th I think to the extent I did think about it, I felt that, that there was uh, something spiritual uh, in my life and, and that uh, by saying the Lord's Prayer every day, maybe I could activate it. And I still do it every day. And yesterday, I'd actually forgotten to do it, but I was in Ikea looking for uh, <laughs> some furniture. I said, well, nothing says I can't do the Lord's Prayer in Ikea. But yes, uh, the thing about God and all of that is you, you can't prove it, you can't disprove it, but I, I think there's, there's something out there who certainly watched out for me from, <laughs> from time to time because I, I had a couple of close calls after that that were, I mean, really close. January 21, 1970, 
I'm at my mortar pit shaving, and uh, all of a sudden there's this huge explosion, and I'm with Delta Company mortars, Charlie Company mortars, uh, had had a big explosion. They were unloading 81 millimeter rounds from a truck. The truck was on fire, and here, here are these guys who, you know, we play baseball together or football or basketball. They're nice, just nice guys, you know, most of them 20 years old. And uh, they were on fire, literally. And the truck was on fire, too. The truck probably had about 200 rounds of mortars there. And what happened was when they, they'd left an operation the night before, they forgot to put in, there's a little pin at the front of the mortar that, that activates the explosion. So you take the pin out before you fire it. Somehow they'd forgotten. And, uh, and uh, here I am looking at them and I've, I've got a bandage in my hand. I drop the bandage and I just start screaming, medic, medic, medic fire extinguishers, fire extinguishers. And all these guys came out of, uh, from every direction. And, uh, you know, they put the uh, fire extinguishers on the fire, on the truck, they got them out. And we started dragging the guys out. And uh, they were they were just, I mean, blood, guts, arms, legs, brain, everything you could imagine. It was, there was nothing we could, they all died. There were 12 of them and they all died. And there was another guy named John Pies, P-I-E-S. He was, uh, he was from Ohio actually. And uh, he was just walking past the truck accidentally. And he, we couldn't find where he was wounded. We couldn't find it. But uh, he died. So that really hurt. This whole thing really hurt me. And uh, it hurt everybody. I mean, I'm in touch with some of the guys who were part of it. And uh, they still have issues. I still have issues with it. (laughs) I just can't, you know, sometimes you can't get over. There are things you really can't get over. But uh, uh, you strive. So... They all died, uh, and uh, we we were all depressed, and uh, it was the worst thing I've ever seen in my life. And and uh, you know maybe a small event. I'm not even sure. I think somebody said it was in the newspapers and Associated Press. You know, twelve twelve casualties. I mean, we were taking a lot more than that every day in infantry operations. So uh, that that was that, and that spun me into post-traumatic disorder, not the type I had after I was wounded, which I got over with, you know, in a couple of weeks, the type that never stopped and that uh, really bothered me to the point where in uh, 1972, I took a uh, 38 caliber Colt revolver. I pulled the hammer back and I put it to my forehead and pulled the camera back, and and uh, I said, "Well, you know, my life sucks. I, I was, you know, part-time janitor. I'm working my way through college, and uh, you know, I have no status. I mean, I'm just a crumb. I'm done. Have a nice day. 
why not just end it here? And so I went to figure I'd watch the show anyway. Could I see it if I shot myself? I don't know. Anyway, so once I actually saw the gun with the hammer pulled back, that's when I said, this is a really bad idea. So, you know, put your finger over the hammer, let it go slowly, put the gun away. That was the end of that. Okay. But uh, that, could, <laughs> that could have been the last thing that ever happened to me. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, my name is Joe Grogan. And I'm Eric Ulan for DCEKG. DCEKG is all about the how and why of Washington, D.C., what's going on, what's going on behind the headlines. We spend a lot of time talking about healthcare and economic policy, but frequently delve into trade policy and sometimes national security or whatever's happening on Capitol Hill. Between Joe and I, we have nearly five decades of Washington experience. We put that to work with our guests to explain to you what's going on in Washington. I always found myself calling Eric when I didn't understand what was happening and always found him to be really good at explaining to me some of the things that I wasn't seeing. And I hope our guests will get the same type of insights. I always found myself talking to Joe when I couldn't believe what I was seeing happening to understand exactly how the heck we got to where we were. Tune in to DCEKG anywhere podcasts or YouTubes are available. You won't regret it. I get to college and uh, I take a, a course called The Psychology of Death. And we learned all about how people react to death and grieving and, uh, you know, that many people are changed when they see death. You know, post-traumatic stress disorder starts from events that are very uh, frightening uh, they are traumatic, they're bloody, they involve cars, firearms, explosives, combat, sexual crimes. And uh, I started to study it, and there really wasn't much written on it. So I did my own research, and uh, a questionnaire study, and I found that people who, Vietnam veterans who saw a lot of combat, had uh, much bigger problems than people, Vietnam veterans who saw no combat. So, uh, which is logical, but it needed to be documented. So I wrote a couple of articles for the Washington Post, an article for military medicine, and I testified in front of the United States Senate uh, to start the Vet Center program, which had been very successful. So in the Vet Center program, by the way, you can go there if you're a World War II veteran, you know, or a Korean veteran, or Iraq, Afghanistan, you can go there and have a little group therapy and talk to counselors and all that sort of thing. And, uh, but so I became an expert on PTSD and when my wife and I went to see a movie one night and, uh, it was, uh, with Robert De Niro, the deer hunter. 
And uh, it almost sounds like a movie. The story almost sounds like a movie. I decided decided that night that I was going to build a National Vietnam Veterans Memorial. And it was going to have all the names on it. And uh, this is going to be a great success and it's be magnificently easy to do this, etc. But it wasn't easy to do. It was very difficult. But uh, I started it and uh, made a kind of a fool of myself. And I started this in uh, 1979. And by Memorial Day 1979, it was a little bit of a laughing stock because we had only raised a couple hundred bucks, actually less than that, to build this memorial. So I didn't really... I was naive, my heart was in the right place, but I didn't realize one thing. I needed a team. I needed a lot of people if I was going to actually get this thing done. And how would I get these people? Well, what happened was the publicity of us, what having being such a failure in raising money, the publicity was uh, caught the attention of a guy named John P. Wheeler III. John P. Wheeler III, one of the most brilliant men I've ever met. Uh, he's not only went to West Point, he went to Harvard Business School, and he went to Yale Law School. <laughs> How many people do you know who have those kind of qualifications? Probably not many, but uh, yeah, a brilliant guy. Interestingly, he was actually murdered in uh, Unsolved Mystery in Delaware in 2011. But uh, he said, look, let me get my group together. So we got several of these uh, Vietnam veterans who were also graduates of Harvard Business School, which is where they send their top cadets, many of the top cadets, after uh, after they become officers. Because the, the Army needs to keep track of a lot of things, and, you know, these business school guys are great at that. And uh, they said, look, why don't we do this like a Harvard Business School problem? What do we need to solve this problem? Well, we need a site, we need a design, uh, we need uh, a competition of some sort to get the best design, et cetera, et cetera. And, and if we start in 1979, we get the ground get from Congress in 1980, by November 1982, we'll actually have it dedicated. And we actually did that. <laughs> We, we had the largest architectural design competition in the history of Western civilization. That's a lot of designs. And who was the winner? Well, she comes from a little town in Ohio called Athens. Her name is Maya Ying Lin. And a Chinese-American, and she would also know, kid with her, she, she would say, I'm as Chinese as apple pie. Because <laughs> you know? they were the only sort of Chinese uh, family in their neighborhood. Uh, both of her parents were professors of uh, English and history, and a very talented family. One of the first families from China to actually be educated in, in Great Britain and, and the United States. And they left after the communists took over in uh, 1949, I believe. Chiang Kai-shek was defeated and moved to Taiwan. And they came to America and, and became teachers. Stunning design, but very problematic. This was seen as very modernistic. And all of a sudden, sort of the right wing of America, conservative America, declares war on this design. It was black granite, not white marble like the rest of Washington. So because it's black instead of white, 
you know, white is pure, black is not, and it's underground. The black gash of shame and sorrow shall not be built. And uh, one conservative columnist put uh, in writing that there's r- rumors that, that a member of the American Communist Party was involved in the design selection. I mean, this thing was completely going out of control. And uh, this controversy started in October 1981 and continued on. But we were able to get the groundbreaking permit. And uh, on March 26, 1982, we broke ground. And uh, once we broke ground, nobody was going to be able to stop this. And even I was unsure whether this design was going to work. All I knew was if we, were, if we failed, it was going to take another 10 years to do it, and we were not going to fail. That was the can-do spirit we had. And uh, we did it and uh, dedicated the memorial November 1982. We had a huge crowd of Vietnam veterans, tens of thousands of them, and everyone embraced this memorial because, you know, black granite is so beautiful. You can see her face in the granite, you know. So it gives you an experience, a psychological experience, much unlike other memorials. I mean, this which you appreciate by getting back and looking at it. I mean, this one, you go right next to it and touch it with your hand. That's the difference. So, and the names were chronological in order. Instead of uh, alphabetical, I mean, how many John Smiths or Jose Garcias do you have on the wall? A lot. (laughs) So, uh, by having the names together, the guys who died together in Vietnam... Their names are right next to each other. They all are alphabetized by day. And uh, so when veterans come there, and this was Maya's dream, they will sort of be brought back in time, and this will help their healing process. So that's the crazy story of the Vietnam Veterans Memorial. (laughs) And uh, uh, I I did it. (laughs) It's there. Uh, A lot of people deserve credit and thanks for it. I thanked West Point and Harvard. I thanked everybody I could thank and uh, thank the American people. And we did this whole thing for um, almost chump change. The, the entire project uh, was $8.4 million. I mean, everything is you know, billions, $100 million. You know, this is like not even $10 million. <laughs> so after the memorial was dedicated... I wrote a book called To Heal the Nation. Some guy in Hollywood read the book and said, oh, man, we need to make a movie out of this. So <laughs> they made a movie called To Heal a Nation, which is free. Uh, you can get it on uh, YouTube. It's free. I'm played by Eric Roberts, the brother of Julia Roberts. I feel that I did have an opportunity to get to know her, but we ended up having a very contentious relationship because as we explained to her, said, Maya, you may not like this, but we're going to change your design. (laughs) We're not going to change the design itself, but we're going to put some additional elements there. We're going to put a statue, which is now the statue of the three fighting men, another statue of of the nurses at the Vietnam Veterans Memorials. There are two groups of statues there, and also an Agent Orange Black. And she's very artistic. And, uh, you know, this is not right. You know, 
and very idealistic. This is not right. So we kind of went to war with the press and everything like that. But uh, anyway, she's, I still consider her a friend. She lives in New York. She's done great. Uh, uh, unfortunately, her, her, I think her husband died three or four months ago. But a very charming person and uh, has done some great things. Maya Lin, A Strong, Clear Vision is a PBS uh, show that won the Academy Award or something like that. And uh, a fantastic person, yeah. She definitely knew the reflexive quality. That was inherent in her design. She wanted everybody to see their own reflection among the names. This would help the healing process. No, she's a certified genius. I mean, you know. Very little of this came about by accident. We had some brilliant people involved. And one of the most brilliant uh, people I've ever met, Maya Ying Lin. Well, for me, it was, a, it, it was a very cathartic thing. It helped heal my wounds from the Vietnam War. And I think uh, she really knew what she was doing. And the... The ind many individuals get some degree of healing there, you know. I mean, tens of thousands of people will tell you that. And uh, in a larger sense, my plan was for this to help the nation to recover from the Vietnam War. According to, you know, Jungian psychology led me through this project. Carl Jung was a student of Sigmund Freud. He believed in co that collect collectively people had a mind together, the collective unconscious. Certain things were sacred. And the one thing that was especially sacred was the idealized version of the hero, societal hero. You know, it's the guy who goes off to battle and fights Hercules and gets wounded by Hercules and comes back and says, well, I tried, and look at my wounds. So because he was wounded fighting, you know, he, to preserve the society, he's the hero. So the plan was, I mean, it was kind of half-baked. The plan was that these people who died in Vietnam would be enough to get this memorial built. People would see that this was really important. And they would remember these guys. And here's the whole deal. It was not hard to raise the money. <laughs> it was easy. It was easy. I mean, we got a million dollars from the American Legion, about the same from the Veterans of Foreign Wars. But most of this money we got from uh, direct mail letters signed by Bob Hope, you know. And uh, it was easy to get the money. It's funny, and whenever I go down there, I, uh, it seems like I meet somebody who's in the middle of something. Last time I was there, I met a fellow. He was a big guy, Chinese-American guy, and had this big Brooklyn accent, you know, and I said, so what, what are you doing here? And he says, well, I'm here to recognize the highest-ranking Asian-American who gave his life in the Vietnam War. And this guy was a navigator on a B-52, I think, which uh, was shot down, and, and he, no, no one survived. And uh, I helped him take a picture and have put him a little, little video of him talking. So there's always kind of something like that, something very dramatic. 
and the Muslim faithful, they go to Mecca. All the Catholics go to uh, Rome. <laughs> and uh, But Vietnam veterans and people touched by that war, this is their Mecca. This is their Rome, the Vietnam Veterans Memorial. So, I, I mean, I, whenever I look at it, also, I, I can't believe I pulled this thing off. And uh, Senator John Warner of Virginia, he's, he's dead now, but, you know, he always said, Providence, God works through Jan Scrooks. <laughs> At least he did for this. I don't know. <laughs> it just kind of happened. I mean, we weren't really prepared by it. People brought their own paper and, and uh, crayons and pencils. And pretty soon we said, okay, let's work with the Park Service and let's have a, a little piece of paper this long and have some people there with pencils. So with, within a year or so, we had uh, uh, volunteer guides, pencils, paper, et cetera, et cetera. I was with uh, a guy named Alex Chadwick. He was National Public Radio. I mean, he's a really good journalist. And for the 10th anniversary of The Wall, he uh, you can find this on the Internet. He said, Jan, why don't... You ever been to look at the names of these guys who, you know, flipped you out so much? And I said, well, no, I haven't really done that yet. <laughs> he said, well, it's been 10 years. Let's go. And I said, well, I, I don't think I can get out of this. So I went to it and uh, my re reaction was pretty predictable. I mean, I couldn't uh, just could fell apart. Yeah, but you can find it, Alec. Alex Chadwick, Jan Scruggs, National Public Radio. It was a bad, un, unpopular war, and we were kind of blamed for it. And, uh, you know, in 1969, the average Army infantry company was composed of 88% draftees. So, uh People weren't tripping all over themselves to fight in that war, and that's for sure. But uh, we did our duty, and uh, others are doing their duty as well. I'd always personally hoped that uh, the nation would learn some lessons from Vietnam and to be careful before they commit the entire nation and our B-52s and our ships and our carriers to fight some war somewhere, somewhere like Afghanistan for example, <laughs> $2 trillion. Uh, we, we need to be more careful. And I, I was hoping that the wall would maybe <laughs> be a nice place to have a debate or something. I don't know. But uh, be it as it may, the, the wall is a great monument. And uh, <laughs> while it may not s stop future wars or, or anything like that, uh, I continue to in encourage everyone to visit it and to bring their family because this is a very positive, uplifting place where you and your children can have some really exciting and, and deep, penetrating conversations. There's one group in particular. It's called uh, Boulder Crest in Virginia and in Arizona. And they bring groups of guys with their wives even for, you know, three or four days of very intense talking you know, it's a little bit of archery, uh, physical fitness activity, and they also teach some meditation. 
And I think uh, meditation is a really important thing for people. Uh, if, if you do nothing else, if you have PTSD, take the deep breath, get these one little meditation apps, and uh, you'll see in a period of, you know, a month or so, you, you'll, you'll see a little difference in your, your temperament. Look, post-traumatic growth is really important. It's worth sort of thinking about because what they found is that many people who have this PTSD from combat-related things, sexual trauma, that sort of thing, you know, eleven basically 11% of the U.S. population has or will have PTSD. <laughs> That's uh, from, uh, you know, uh, the Mayo Clinic. They point out, you know, people who get PTSD, many times they'll have panic attacks, outburst, aggression. But under post-traumatic growth, you can actually get a better appreciation and strengthening of close friendships, relationships with your family, your spouse, your parents. And many people have a, an increased desire to be altruistic to do something positive for other people or for animals. You know, a, a lot of the, these veterans from Iraq and Afghanistan and other wars, you know what keeps them sane? Getting a dog. You know, a dog or a cat. Say, I can't leave my cat. I can't leave my cat and shoot myself. So animals play a really important uh, part in people's lives. So I wish everyone the very best. And uh, people say, how did you get the Vietnam Veterans Memorial built? And I say, listen, did you ever see Dan Aykroyd in the Blues Brothers? I'm Dan Aykroyd in the Blues Brothers. I was on a mission from God. I mean, in my mind, this is what God wanted. God wanted this to happen. And somehow I ended up at the, at the steering wheel of this thing. So, you know, uh, a, a deep commitment to doing something helps remove a lot of obstacles. And uh, it was a very difficult project. A lot of terrible things happened to me uh, as a result of doing this. <laughs> you get into little fights in Washington. People have long memory and they do things to screw you over. So uh, it's not been pleasant, but the hard part's over now. It's the 40th anniversary of the memorial, and uh, life is good. Um, actually, my wife and I are getting a... We live in Annapolis. We're getting a little apartment near the Vietnam Veterans Memorial so I can walk there, walk there in 15 minutes instead of fighting traffic and all that. So it's a good thing. That was Specialist Jan Scruggs. To learn more about Jan, visit his website, founderofthewall.com. Also, check out his podcast titled Jan Scruggs Vietnam War Stories, The War and the Wall. Thanks for listening to Warriors in Their Own Words. If you have any feedback, please email the team at kharbaugh at evergreenpodcast.com. We're always looking to improve the show. For updates and more, follow us on Twitter at team underscore harbaugh. And if you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to rate and review. Warriors in Their Own Words is a production of Evergreen Podcasts in partnership with The Honor Project. Our producer is Declan Roars. Bridget Coyne is our production director, and Sean Rolhoffman is our audio engineer. Special thanks to Evergreen executive producers Joan Andrews, Michael DeAloya, and David Moss. I'm Ken Harbaugh, and this is Warriors in Their Own Words.
Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.